Hi, you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 56th episode. Today, we will delve into an issue very close to my heart. See, I come from a family of strong women, all professionally accomplished and dedicated to doing good. I know firsthand how women's inclusion in the workforce and their financial autonomy can elevate a family or even a society. So let's talk about this issue with a foremost expert in this field. Mary Lynn Iskandarian is our guest. She's the president and CEO of Women's World Banking, a nonprofit organization devoted to giving low-income women in the developing world access to financial tools and resources they need to achieve security and prosperity. Mary Ellen has been with Women's World Banking for 15 years and leads the firm's global team based in New York. And she also serves as a member of the investment committee of its two impact investment funds. Prior to Women's World Banking, Mary Ellen worked for 17 years at the IFC or the International Financial Corporation, Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. She's a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as a member of the Women's Forum of New York and the UN Business and Sustainable Development Commission. Mary Ellen, a warm welcome to Kopi Time. Hi, Timer. It's so great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, let's start with the issue of gender equity. Where do we stand? And can you share with us some data from the industrial and emerging world that help us appreciate the gender gaps that exist right now? Sure. So when we talk specifically around issues of financial inclusion, um, the the gender gap globally is 7%. So there are 7% more men with an account in their own name than women. In the developing markets, that's 9%. Now, you're probably thinking, wow, I thought things were a lot worse. That's not so bad. Some of it really has to do with the way that financial inclusion is measured. So all that number tells you is how many people actually have an account in their own name. It doesn't say anything about usage. It doesn't say anything about um, other services that are offered through that account. And it really doesn't tell you very much about probably the, the single biggest factor in financial inclusion today, which is digital financial services. So if we, we start to unpack those numbers a little bit, we see a much bigger gap when we start looking at cell phone ownership, for example. So the ownership of the, the feature phone, flip phone, that's also sort of roughly 10% globally. But since most of the banking um, approaches are really being designed for uh, internet enabled phones or smartphones, that's again, really where you start to see the divide 20% um, gender gap in um, globally in the emerging markets in South Asia, those numbers start to creep up into a 30% gap. So 300 million fewer phones owned by women, uh, mobile phones, uh, 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 smartphones owned by women than by men. And that's really the, the ticket to digital financial services and really the, the on-ramp to financial inclusion. So I, I guess just wrapping this up, the, the headline numbers really don't tell you a lot about what's really going on in the, in the field today. So you would include access to cell phone almost as important an aspect of financial inclusion as having a bank account. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and not again, similarly to the bank account, not just access, but really a, a an understanding of how to use it, a confidence to use it. Again, we see a real gap in um, men's and women's willingness to, you know, to play around. You know, um, women will download WhatsApp quite easily on their phones, but then they get sort of stuck on that app and they don't tend not to, um, you know, to, to explore the rest of the internet, the rest of the functionality of the phone, whereas men are much more willing to do that. And that's a factor, unfortunately, we see in, across the income spectrum for women. Okay, so I'm, again, starting from very basic. So I would ask a question that might seem a bit naive. So forgive me for that, which is <laughs> why is women's financial inclusion at the heart of your organization? I mean, if you were keen on gender equity, couldn't you just advocate for legal reforms that ensure equality of access or opportunities across gender? And it's such a great question. Um, and maybe I can take a little step back and tell you a little bit about Women's World Banking and um, you know where we come from. Uh, so we are 42 years old this year, and the organization really um, stemmed from, was, was um, uh, incubated, if you will, at the first UN Conference on Human Rights for Women in 1976 in Mexico City. And a group of women who were there from different walks of life, different parts of the world, you know, were listening to all of this human rights-based language and realized that if women didn't have equality of economic rights, and some of that is in absolutely the legal reforms that you alluded to, if they don't have economic equality, then that uh, so many of those human rights really are denied them. And I think it's, it's always important to re remember that in 1976 in the United States, the country I'm from, uh, you know, a woman couldn't get a, a loan in her own name without her husband's signature. She couldn't have a credit card in her own name. There was no opportunity for her to say, no, my, my social security benefits go to someone other than my husband. You know, there was a lot of constraints around women's financial equality, even in the developed world at the time. Um, and so this, this movement grows, 1979, we are created. And the original um, intention really was um, this support to women entrepreneurs. If a woman entrepreneur was denied a loan, Women's World Banking would stand behind them as guarantor. That was the original um, identity or identifying mission. And indeed, we did a lot of those loan guarantees in the early years. But it was happening just as the global microfinance movement was really starting to explode. Um, uh, a lot of it born in your home country in, in Bangladesh, but we saw also very exciting trends in, in Bolivia and some of the other Latin American countries. And so those two movements kind of merged in, in Women's World Banking. And so we started in some ways as a membership organization and supporting microfinance institutions around the world that were really committed to women's financial inclusion um, as it was understood then, which was largely access to you know, very small loans. But, and I'd say we sort of stayed in that mode of membership organization for 25 years or so. But this is where I think the story gets kind of exciting and loops back to your question. As technology slowly started to really emerge as the main way that we were going to be able to reach 
large numbers of excluded people, both men and women, the number of organizations and players and interested parties who really kind of wanted to get in on this game of reaching low-income people, not just with credit service services, but with savings, with insurance, and, and very notably with payments, we started to see an explosion in, in terms of who Women's World Banking could and should be working with. So today we've moved far beyond those microfinance origins and we work with 56 financial service providers in 31 countries. They serve a total of 69 million women and they are all over the place. There are still some wonderful iconic microfinance institutions, but we have about a third of the, our network members today are fintechs. There are 23 full-fledged commercial banks, some of them working um, across several markets, which is very exciting to be able to really reach women at scale. We have a payments bank, we have insurance companies. So the, the plethora of players now is really so exciting. And the ability to use women's access to finance to move the dial on so many other issues like safe uh, water, food security, better health, better education, really makes financial inclusion such a great lever to drive change in so many other ways. Okay, very exciting. And I'm gonna unpack some of the stuff you talked about because you know we, we need to get deeper into it. Okay, so firstly, all the initiatives you started saying that you know in the 70s starting from loan guarantees to then partnering with microfinance corporations and now focus on the digital so share with us a couple of specific key initiatives for 2020 and 2021 through the middle of this pandemic that has made you feel that you know it, it, they're having a huge impact well the digital i mean there's this isn't an original uh, issue with financial inclusion digital has become so so critical and has really I think there's been an, a, a moment, I, I'm tremendously optimistic actually, that some of the things that we were able to achieve in terms of financial inclusion um, as a result of the pandemic, um, you know, it's taken years for us to, you know, to do what we've been able to do in, in a matter of months. So you saw really many governments and the regulators in those governments, not, not, recklessly by any means, but uh, take on a greater willingness to look at remote account opening or the movement of um, government benefits payments or relief payments onto a digital platform in order to take care, uh, uh, take advantage of that, that contactless um, delivery, the need to be socially distant. Uh, in India alone, in the first two, two weeks of their announcement of COVID relief payments, you know, back at the beginning of the, the pandemic, opened 25 million bank accounts in two weeks, mostly for for women and mostly because they were only one of two countries that made a dedicated effort to um, have their COVID relief payments payable only to women. And they were working off of decades now of research that looks at when you put that payment, a, a welfare payment or a, even a tax credit payment into the hands of a woman directly, more numbers of people in the family benefit, you see real impa impacts on, 
um, better nutrition, better healthcare, more kids stay in school. So they really learned those lessons of making sure those payments can get into the hands of women. It's interesting, Marion. I have heard from some people that the pandemic was particularly tough on women because if you have to stay at home, uh, it's almost always the women's job to look after the kids who are doing school from home. And as a result, the labor force participation for women has sort of gone down both across developed and developing markets. So yes, I mean, on one hand, I fully agree with you that the acceleration in some of the digital uh, reforms that were planned for over a multi-year horizon have gotten done in a fast track manner. But when you sort of scan the horizon and you've been looking at a wide number of emerging market economies or developing economies, um, do you see that digital divide play out or has it actually been counterintuitively not the case and women actually have been more included? So, th so the digital divide has, I, I think, is is pretty much, an, uh, or the, the closing of that divide in the last year um, has, I think, been a pretty much an unalloyed success. You've seen, um, you know, it, it, much of our work in the last year has really been taking this tremendous opportunity of these COVID relief payments, increasingly digital, increasingly going to women, because you saw several countries, Indonesia in particular, and we've done quite a bit of work there, we can talk about that. Um, basically, you know, on a dime, they um, pivoted their largest conditional cash transfer program, the PKHA program, into a COVID relief payment. And that was already going to women, but they really um, looked for ways to have that program also drive women's financial inclusion. So I think that has been quite positive for women. Where we're still quite concerned is exactly on the issue you mentioned, the care burden has always and, and still does fall disproportionately hard on women. And so now as economies are beginning to open back up again, you're seeing women it's really lagging in going back into the labor force until schools are open full time, until childcare is, is consistently um, available. So that sort of outside of the digital realm, that is still presenting, you know, real, real problems with regard to inequality. Now, can, can digital also be a solution to that problem? We were already starting to see pre-pandemic a real movement to digital commerce and many women moving their businesses online and able to reach a much larger um, population with their products and services. And very, so very exciting opportunities for that woman who um, might have that home-based business to bring that online. So again, there might be a bit of a silver lining, but I don't think we should, um, we should, should be celebrating quite yet um, on, on the impact, the disproportionately hard impact of the, uh, the economic effects of the, the uh, pandemic on women. Right, I, you know, we, we characterize 21 as a year of cross currents. So in a way you just describe yet another cross current that there are certain silver linings, but then there are also certain challenges that we cannot just forget about. Uh, you partner a lot with governments and government organizations. So on this particular issue of the post pandemic recovery, maybe asymmetric and, and more detrimental to women coming back to the labor force, are you seeing governments cognizant of this risk and are you seeing them trying to ameliorate that risk? Uh, very much so. And I think, again, that's, 
I, I don't think that quite rises to silver lining, but it certainly does appear to be a wake up call. You've seen a, a much greater realization that, you know, basically without childcare, without a consistent uh, place and uh, assuredness of access to childcare, so much is there's so much economic opportunity just will continue to be um, denied women. And so you're starting to see policymakers building that into other relief. The other thing that we haven't talked about yet that is just literally uh, at epidemic portion uh, proportions in the last year is gender-based violence. And when particularly during lockdown situations, you've seen um, violence against women just skyrocket. Unfortunately, you're seeing um, an increase in violence against young girls. I was talking to one of our partners in Kenya just last week, and she's saying this is the first time in, in decades that you've started to see creeping up numbers of uh, child marriage. So young girls who may have been abused during lockdown, getting pregnant and then being being married at, at younger and younger ages, which is unfortunately a trend that we were starting to see um, turn around. And that too is a, has been a wake up call for governments. You've seen a couple of countries um, make larger allocations of COVID related funding to um, uh, domestic violence shelters, for example. So you've started to see a policy awareness of how the the lockdown itself and then the economic impacts really hit women harder and differently. Um, maybe that was not the most felicitous turn of phrase to, to say hit women, but affect women uh, uh, harder and differently than they do men. I'm really glad, uh, you know, Mary even as economists, you know, we sort of write about scarring impact of crises. We, we wrote about it after the 0809 crisis. There's certainly going to be some degree of scarring. But once one sort of, you know, is not cognizant of these sort of, you know, details about the impact on gender and inequality, one sort of misses out. It's not just about the impact on the financial sector or just bringing people back to work. It's a question of you know which segment of the population is disproportionately affected. So I'm okay. glad that you're you're seeing that sort of awareness and that feeding into policy making. Um, you briefly mentioned India and Indonesia earlier, and you know I was a proud member of your Southeast Asian Council for a couple of years. So I want you to tell us a bit more about your involvement in Asian economies and tell us both through your partnership with governments, but also the entrepreneurs that you're supporting. So as a, a proud member of our Southeast Asia Advisory Council, you know that we, we sort of entered the, the region in a very unusual way for us. We had a, a deep and um, very, um, we were very honored to be, um, sort of embraced by the Indonesian government in the creation of their national financial inclusion strategy, which is not typically the way that we sort of move into a market, but it gave us just a, you know, an incredible breadth of vision of what the issues were, what the gender issues might be that the government really had not even realized were gender issues. Um, you know, Indonesia has turned out to be um, just such an incredible learning ground for us. And it, it is a country that 
um, you know, we were talking at the, the start of the, the conversation about, you know, the, you have to maybe double click on the data. Indonesia is a perfect example. If you look at their published financial inclusion data, you actually see a reverse gender gap. There are more women that have a bank account in their own name than men. But the usage is very, very much the other way. And I think that the depth of the, you know, the financial depth for, um, particularly for low-income women is, um, is, 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 is really quite, quite problematic, something that the government is, is quite aware of. And that was why the work that we were doing with the PKH program um, before the pandemic just, it, again, turned out to be so felicitous and so well-timed because as they moved into COVID relief, so many of the issues that were coming up um, were gender related. And so we were very proud to be a, you know, a close partner of several of the economic ministries um, uh, as well as, as the, the social affairs ministry. When they switched the PKH payment to um, COVID relief, they doubled the number of payments and increased the frequency. And you saw the most frequently asked question by women is, I'd like to save some of this money. I don't necessarily want to, to spend it all now, um, but I, I don't know how, how can I save it? They had no real understanding that the, the way they had been receiving this program, this payment was in a bank account. So, you know, very basic financial literacy, we got, got uh, down to very, very quickly and explained, you know, this, the ability to save within that account. Um, and the fact that it was digital, we were able to do some, some fast digital education as well to give women the confidence to interact, particularly if they were going to leave, um, savings in the account. Now, unfortunately, we also had a lot of questions about, um, let's see, if I'm going to save this money, do I have to tell my husband about it? And so that always, I, I think that's the most frequently second asked question <laughs> when uh, when we're talking to women about savings. So uh, just to, the, the opportunity of the, um, G2P payment, the government to person payment for further financial inclusion, I'd say has been a real hallmark of, of the, the pandemic response from Women's World Banking. Okay, and then um, I saw in Southeast Asia in particular, uh, you also, you know, facilitating, you know, FinTech challenge and providing uh, support to entrepreneurs in Cambodia, Vietnam, elsewhere. So give us a flavor to the listeners about all those things that you've been doing the last few years. No, th th thanks for that that prompt, because after that sort of initial um, entry into, into Southeast Asia with the work with the government, we've really gotten uh, very excited about possibilities in in the, the private sector as well. And as you mentioned, we've been working with a, um, a mobile uh, provider wing in Cambodia, both um, on their G2P, they were, they were part of the, the government's um, relief payments distribution process. But then more recently, um, we took a solution actually that we had piloted in Bangladesh in terms of um, digitized wage payments from 
become garment workers and are now um, applying that for digitized salaries that um, factory workers in Cambodia also receive through Wing. And there, the real, um, you know, the real focus, and I'd say it's 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 not just in Cambodia, but really goes across the the region is we were seeing 80% of those salary payments were cashed out within four hours of uh, receipt on, on day one. And in Cambodia and much of Southeast Asia has really been very good about having so many things that can be paid digitally. And there's really no reason to pay your utility bills, pay your rent, pay so many of these very important household responsibilities in cash. If you can keep that those payments in the digital system. So it's been both a, a combination of identifying use cases that are relevant for, for women in particular, but also some financial education, some digital literacy around how to use that digital account so that you don't have to um, have to cash out. I think we've also, um, we're also very excited about um, maybe taking further afield a project we worked on in, um, in Indonesia, we we found that um, midwives have traditionally almost been a, a sort of secret bank account or a banking source for pregnant women who save throughout their pregnancy for you know the the large expense of the of the delivery and then uh, the post uh, postpartum expenses and so we thought well what about digitizing all of that because we saw not only that the midwives have have uh, mobile phones but their the majority of their patients did as well so we've created a mobile wallet product for the midwives, but we also made the midwives um, agents, uh, digital payments agents in their village. So that brings sort of another source of revenue for them. They're already a trusted um, known quantity in the village. So they had a, a natural um, business ad advantage also providing some financial education. So we're very excited about that possibility because that, 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 maternal health care relationship is so important for so many women around the world that we think there's a lot of, uh, this has a lot of legs, if you will. I wanted to ask you a related question because I know that uh, Women's World Banking does a lot of research on all these different issues that's taking place. Have you had any insights on what women do when they receive the digital payment? I mean, do they use it for the things that you just talked about, which is paying bills, or do they also end up spending more money on their children's health and education than they otherwise would have. Is there any finding like that? Um, it, 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 yes and no. I think it really depends on the, the circumstance in which they're receiving the payment. I think one thing that we have seen throughout the pandemic that was a pleasant surprise is we've seen savings balances increase you know, across the board. And so there really does seem to be an understanding amongst low-income people receiving these government relief payments that they need to be creating a safety net. This may be, this may go on for a while. And so using those payments for immediate expenses is, is not the right policy. So we've been, uh, we've been really pleasantly surprised to see, um, savings savings increase and that tends to be motivated by the woman the the putting money aside for that that longer term um 
need tends to be more motivated for a woman. When it's something like a conditional cash transfer that she's receiving a payment if she's you know, keeping her child in school or taking her child for preventive health care checkups on a regular basis and then re receiving a payment, we see that those payments, as, as I mentioned earlier, tend to go towards um, you know, more nutritional um, foods. We, you, you, you definitely see a change in, in uh, the, the quality of food that's, that's consumed by more members of the family. You, you definitely see healthcare as a number one um, use of funds for women uh, in, in the household. That just seems to be a social norm across the world that, that women are sort of responsible for the healthcare expenses of the family. You see, um, and you see education. And again, it's more members of the family staying in school for longer periods of time, in, including girls. So Maryland, Women's World Banking has a longstanding deep relationship in a number of African countries, as well as in Latin America. Uh, through the last year and a half, have you seen your operations in Africa evolving differently than the ones that you just talked about in Asia and same with Latin America, or they have, been all the same that people are responding to incentives and challenges similarly across the world? That's a great question. I, I do think, you know, that this focus on digital, the, the recognition that um, it's not only a great equalizer, but the, the, the speed, convenience, uh, of, and, and the proximity of, uh, of the, the mobile payment. There's a lot of research, very interesting research that um, very um, strong correlation. And I know you, you economists are always very reluctant to ascribe correlation but, uh, and, and causation, but we see very close causation, uh, correlation between um, financial inclusion and the proximity of financial outlets. And so with digital agents able to be much more uh, prevalent than you know the traditional bricks and mortar bank. You're seeing financial inclusion rates increase, and much more so for women than than for men. That that convenience factor, that ability to to bank from home, you know, in your pocket, really plays an, a huge um, role in moving women's. Um, moving women's financial inclusion. And that's something really we've seen, you know, across the board. But Mary Ellen, uh, the depth of the pandemic has clearly been, you know, much more felt in Latin America. I have friends in Colombia and Brazil and Uruguay, and it's a whole different level of outbreak related disruption to lives and livelihoods. Uh, so any uh, views or any insights or experiences on how things are there vis-a-vis -vis Asia where admittedly the pandemic has not been that severe? No, that's a that's a great question. I have to say I've been so impressed by the financial service providers that we've worked with throughout um, Latin America in their the, the the nimbleness of their response, the the recognition of the unique issues that their clients are facing in in this time, 
pretty much, you know, all of the countries that we're working in did put payment moratoria in place for, for any loans that, that these financial service providers might have had outstanding. And where I think the Latin American financial service providers were so fortunate is that there, there is a higher level of um, digitization. More women have access to, um, to mobile phones there than in some of the other places we've talked about. And that factor alone allowed these financial service providers to stay in touch with their client base. And so they had a much better idea coming out of the moratorium, you know, who was going to be able to repay, who was going to be able to, um, you know, who was going to, to, to need to restructure, but would ultimately get, you know, back on, back on their feet. We saw, um, you know, you and I haven't talked yet about our impact investment work. And um, I was going to come to that. that that is really where um, we've seen some some real some real breakout opportunities. We just invested in a fintech in Colombia that um, sort of works on a, a model that has worked very well for women over the years. It's just where you have um, trusted members of the community doing initial um, credit screening assessment of the, the the household's ability to repay and then bringing that information back to the, the fintech who uses an, uh, a scoring algorithm. Um, they have both men and women um, referrers, but it's been very interesting. Women are much less frequently referring than men, but they're, the rate of an, a loan actually being dispersed and then that loan being repaid is much higher um, amongst the women referrals. And that ability to stay in touch with the client through these women referrers that are in the, um, in the community has just allowed this FinTech to really maintain a very high rate of repayment. They've um, just started an insurance payment that's been bundled with some of their loans in response to some of the, the healthcare related issues that have come up um, with the pandemic. So I, I, you know, I, I'm a bit of a broken record here on the, the digital, but it's we've really seen some instances in Latin America where that has been, um, you know, that's been very helpful in Mexico. We're seeing some of the banks being really responsive to, um, uh, small business entrepreneurs trying to move their businesses online and then facilitating online payments um, for them. Okay, so I'm going to get to the investment fund in a second, but since you brought this up, I, I just thought of this issue, which is, so I live in Singapore and we have a very large number of female domestic workers in Singapore who send back money to the Philippines or Burma or India, wherever they come from. You have similar uh, presence in Hong Kong and increasingly so in other parts of Asia. So clearly um, there is a huge amount of women migrant workers, formally employed, these are not informal workers and they are sending money back home. So to your point about digital and facilitation of these things, uh, any interesting things that are happening on the digital space on uh, remittances? <clears throat> oh, so glad you raised it. In fact, we've just in the last few months launched a, um, a remittance project um, in the independent in Indonesia Singapore corridor with a fintech in an Indonesian fintech and looking at not just facilitating the the payment itself which is kind of the easy part in a, in a way there's some digital literacy involved at both the remitter and the rece recipient end but really how how do we make sure that 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 remittance can be uh, 
a, an on-ramp or a, a, a driver of broader inclusion and trying to understand the, the broader set of needs on the part of both the senders and the receivers. We have seen some you know, really interesting research that um, you know, senders have very strong views about how they want their money um, spent when it's received. They obviously, particularly during this pandemic time, have wanted, you know, for whatever consumption needs are, are required, but the vastly most desired um, outcome for some portion of the funding are healthcare and education. And so we're looking at, you know, is there a way to segregate payments? You know, there's some data, some interesting um, behavioral um, uh, economics data that shows even if you just label the payment, the remittance for education, the, there's a higher likelihood that, that at least a portion of the remittance will be used um, for, for that purpose. So we're using a lot of um, you know, uh, behavioral techniques, a lot of design techniques. How do we make sure that that payment is achieving the most in terms of both financial inclusion and the goals that both the sender and the, and the recipient um, are, are looking to achieve? All right. So these are innovative activities and clearly, you know, fintechs are doing it because they can make money out of it. And if they can make <laughs> money out of it while doing good, uh, Women's World Banking can then start offering impact opportunities. So Marilyn, you sit on two of the impact uh, investment funds at WWB. Uh, tell us about those funds and what they do and how they have been doing. So this has been, I think, you know, one of my proudest achievements in my time at Women's World Banking is moving us from being a, uh, I, I think, a, a trusted researcher, a trusted advisor. There's a, a lot of work that we are have been um, trusted with within our partners um, to help them move the needle, both in terms of uh, outreach to women clients, but greater gender diversity amongst their leadership and board, but the ability to really drive change as a shareholder and as a, you know, a member of a board of directors really has outpaced anything we were ever able to see um, as an advisor. So I'm, I'm very excited. Our first, our first fund was a $50 million fund. We made 10 investments across the globe. Most of them were in, in more traditional microfinance institutions, although we had a, a couple of interesting outliers, an SME lender in, um, in Jordan, for example. Um, all of them just got really hard hit with moratoriums and you know, liquidity issues and all sorts of issues that came up with the, the pandemic. I am thrilled that so many of them had, as I've been saying, um, really good digital connections to their clients were able to stay on top of clients we started to see you know as early as you know early last summer repayment rates starting to tick up even under moratorium because the population they were serving were were so intent on maintaining that line of credit maintaining that ability to borrow come as their businesses came out of um, out of the pandemic so we had while we had a um, 
you know, pretty significant write down evaluation right at that first quarter um, when the pandemic came on board. We've been able to to um, improve our evaluation steadily. We've had a couple of um, very strong exits um, of the uh, of that first fund portfolio. To my amazement, we were able to have a first closing of seventy five million dollars within three weeks of the the New York lockdown, um, which. I'm not, I'm not sure in retrospect, I would have written a check <laughs> during, during those first few weeks, but we were just very, very uh, grateful to our LPs for having that, that, that faith in us as we, uh, uh, as we were, were raising money over the, over the immediate pre-pandemic period. We've made four investments during the um, during the this this period since last March. Um, really interesting companies. Three of them are fintechs. Uh, the fourth is a, uh, an affordable housing lender in India that makes it a requirement that the woman's name be on the title to the property that they are financing against because that asset ownership. Uh, relationship to empowerment is so, so strong. Our most recent investment and actually the largest investment we've made to date was in a P2P micro lender in Indonesia, uh, Amartha. And we're really excited about the opportunity there. Um, they've performed extraordinarily well throughout the um, throughout the, the pandemic. And uh, we're very excited about working with them on building out the platform and other products that they might be able to, to offer on, on that platform. We are still in capital raising mode, so I, I can't say too much more uh, to your, your podcast audience, but um, we think this is a really exciting time to have capital for um, particularly for digital financial service opportunities and for an ability to, to support women um, as they come out of the pandemic. Okay, so sounds like you know it's gone very, very well and, and I'm really glad it has, but the life of somebody who raises money from skeptical investors cannot be that <laughs> easy. So share with us the skeptical questions that you get and tell us the responses that you make that clinches the deal for you. Well, there is, there's this really frustrating, I'm so glad you asked this, uh, Tamar. Um, there, there's this very frustrating um, sort of false equivalency, I think, in a lot of investors' minds that I think first, when you say impact, there is somehow an assumption, whether it's stated or not, that that means, oh, I have to give up a little bit of return. And then when you say women, somehow that's, oh, I'm gonna to have to give up even more return. So I think really one of the first hurdles that we have to um, get over really with everybody, whether it's you know, development finance institutions, you know, even people who are mission focused to, to say at the heart of our business proposition is that a financial institution that is committed to serving women is actually a very profitable growth strategy and that that's the strategy we're investing in. And what's been really gratifying is that we've seen in our portfolio that the institutions that have more than 50% women clients have had fully 
600 basis points improved ROE throughout the life of our, uh, the, the holding period of our investments. We've seen um, amongst the, during the holding period amongst our portfolio companies, we've seen an, an 82% increase in women clients. So we're very proud that we've really been able to, to make that case to our, our, um, our portfolio companies, but then really being able to show that, 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 that almost overweighting of women clients shows up in better returns. And that's the question that the investors, we really have to, you know, have to address. Fantastic. Now, these sort of, sort of ground level insights are not only, you know, useful um, cases for convincing a skeptical investor, but I would think that this will also benefit companies that are considering gender equity within their ranks. So my understanding is that Women's World Banking also does uh, work with uh, companies to provide them with tools and programs to build gender diverse teams. So we haven't really talked about that. Would you share with us, you know, what kind of stuff you do? That, that's really such a fundamental part of the, you know, the whole picture that we've, we see that institutions that have diverse, diverse teams and particularly gender diverse teams do have outsized financial, uh, financial performance. So Women's World Banking has been offering some variation of leadership training that really drives women's leadership in, inside both financial service providers, and then more recently inside financial regulators, um, you know, through pretty much throughout our history, there's a, a sort of model that we've stumbled on in the last um, eight years or so that works particularly well, where you pair a senior executive, or in the case of the regulators, a senior regulator that's, you know, more or less at the de deputy governor level of a central bank with a high potential woman. And they both go through training separately and together on the um, financial service provider side, our, our academic partner is the Wharton School. Uh, at uh, the regulatory side, we're, we're partnering with Oxford University. So there's you know, really world-class, world-caliber leadership and, and management training. And then we're providing um, that, that sort of extra sauce of why does diversity matter? What does diversity in a policy actually look like? So many policymakers just assume you know, policy is gender blind when nothing could be further from the truth. But, and once their eyes have been opened to this, it can really, um, really, really uh, change minds. So that, that making sure that there is a group of both men and women in an organization that understand the value of diversity and understand how policies and products impact women differently is, um, is, is a very important part of the way we drive impact. That's great. Uh, okay, finally, a little bit of crystal ball gazing. You've been working at this space for the last couple of decades. So seeing the progress that's been made, uh, where do you see the state of women's financial inclusion in the year 2040? 2040, oh, all right. I've got almost 20 years. I do think that we will easily be at parity um, on the measurements that I, I mentioned before. And my, my crystal ball is that the technology gap will also close. And maybe women may even exceed because the technology um, benefits like convenience, confidentiality, um, security. When women get it, they 
they adopt at much, much faster rates than men. So I'm going to go so far as to say we will have um, a bit of reverse gender gap and we'll, my uh, successor will come on your successor's podcast and talk about how we can work on men's financial inclusion. <laughs> We'll, we'll definitely look forward to that. Marilyn Eskandarian, thank you so much for being on our show today. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Timer, and please stay safe. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thanks to our listeners, too. Copy Time was produced by Martin Tucky. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 56 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling CBS Research Library. Have a great day. <laughs>